most kids resent a dad who's constantly pushing them. Let's go. But not Rick Hoyt. We can do this. For years, Rick has been pushed, pulled, and carried by his dad, and he loves it. Here they come! That's because Rick, a wheelchair quadriplegic since birth, and his father, Dick, together have competed in over 65 marathons. So when you see Dick Hoyt pushing his son around, you're witnessing extraordinary devotion. Pass it on from the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Atlanta's number one radio stations, Swanky 93.3 and The Heat 94.6. Radio stations has you covered. From our studios to our newsroom at KLP Entertainment. Listen on all major audio platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audacity, Apple Podcast, Stitcher Podcast, Google Podcast, YouTube and more. A few words for a successful life. Always ask why. Why? Tell the truth. All the time. Why? Write thank you notes. Eat right, sleep right. And exercise. If you don't like your job, change it. Why? Be creative every day. Take a fun trip. You don't always have to do things fast. These motivating thoughts from Randy Pausch's last lecture remind each of us to live our dreams. And I go now, my dog wants to play. Oh yeah, play with your dog. And with your kids. Motivation. Pass it on from the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Live from our newsrooms brings back our hit news network, SNN, with many news anchors like Arthur Brooks, Addison Hayden, and Beatrix Gemma. Brings you stories about the news worldwide. Tune in on Atlanta's number one stations, Swanky 93.3 and The Heat 94.6 radio stations. To get the latest news today, listen on all major audio platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audacity, Apple Podcasts. Stitcher Podcast, Google Podcast, YouTube, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our channel of KLP Entertainment. Reporting live from our newsroom, this is SNN. I'm Addison Hayden. Here's your business news breaking for May 1st. In San Francisco, a troubled year at a Whole Foods market reflects a city's woes. Tech workers have stayed home, and ongoing social problems downtown are forcing civic and business leaders to confront harsh realities about the city's pandemic recovery. Last year, with pandemic lockdowns in the rearview mirror, Whole Foods market made a bet on a gritty San Francisco neighborhood. The high-end supermarket chain opened a giant flagship store in a part of the city that is home to both tech companies like Twitter and open-air drug dealing. But the store was soon confronted head-on with many of the problems plaguing the area. People threatened employees with guns, knives and sticks. They flung food, screamed, fought and tried to defecate on the floor, according to records of 568 emergency calls over 13 months many depicting scenes of mayhem. Mail with Machete is back, the report on 1911 call states. Another security guard was just assaulted, another says. A man with a four-inch knife attacked several security guards, then sprayed store employees with foam from a fire extinguisher, according to a third. In September, a 30-year-old man died in the bathroom from an overdose of fentanyl, 
a highly potent opioid, and methamphetamine. When Whole Foods announced in mid-April that it was closing the store, citing the safety of its employees, many in San Francisco saw it as a representation of some of the city's most intractable problems. Property crimes like shoplifting and car break-ins, an entrenched network of dealers selling fentanyl and other illicit drugs and people suffering from untreated mental illness wandering the streets. The closure also seemed to be the latest indicator of San Francisco's faltering economic prospects providing more grist for an ongoing debate over where the city is headed after tying its fate to the tech industry. The Whole Foods was supposed to cater to tech workers and other professionals, part of a long-term redevelopment plan downtown. But the store fell victim to a grinding decline in the city's center that began with the pandemic and could continue for years as companies vacate offices because of remote work. In a city famous for its boom and bust cycles, San Francisco's continued slump has left residents in a sour mood, angry at city leaders, and waiting for the sparks of revitalization. Now, largely because the tech industry has so wholeheartedly embraced work from home, activity in San Francisco's downtown remains at roughly a third of pre-pandemic levels, lower than in about 50 other major cities, according to one new study that used cell phone data as a measure. This is going to be a very slow recovery, F. Ishua said this month from behind his desk at the downtown fine art gallery he owns in Union Square. The area is a prime spot for tourists, who have been steadily returning to the city. A bright spot and a contrast to the 26% vacancy rate of downtown offices. The impact on the city's budget is significant, too. Office-based industries account for nearly three-quarters of the city's gross domestic product. After years of surpluses, the government now forecasts a $780 million deficit in the upcoming two fiscal years, roughly a 6% cut in its general fund, according to the mayor's office. City officials say they are searching for ways to diversify the economy and to reduce homelessness and drug dealing. They realize that some of the largest local employers, big tech companies, will not be towing San Francisco from its economic shoals. Twitter, Google, Facebook and Salesforce, all of which have offices in the city, have laid off thousands of workers. San Francisco leaders point out that the city has rebounded again and again, including after the near collapse of the tech industry in 2000 and the national recession about eight years later. We've been counted out before, and there have been others who have tried to imply because things aren't happening as fast or the way that they think it should happen, that it's over, London Breed, the city's mayor, said in an interview. In the famously liberal city, where Republicans make up just 7% of the electorate, moderate Democrats, like Mayor Breed, are calling for aggressive steps to address public safety concerns while progressive voices decry law and order strategies as knee-jerk responses that trample on the vulnerable. City leaders face some limitations. A federal judge in April determined that San Francisco cannot clear homeless people from public spaces because it has not done enough to provide shelter. Mayor Breed is backing bills in the state legislature that would make it easier to force mentally ill people into treatment. The mayor has also proposed addressing homelessness by building more, slashing the permitting process for construction with the goal of building 83,000 additional homes and apartments, a 20% increase from the city's current total housing stock in eight years. 
Even though the downtown is plastered with four lease signs, the city's unemployment rate is under 3% and the mayor and other officials say the engineering talent pool remains the city's top asset. And there is much more to San Francisco than its downtown. It has always been a constellation of very different neighborhoods, some of which have very few of the social ills that afflict the area near the closed Whole Foods. Officials add that the downtown may ultimately emerge more resilient if it attracts industries like life sciences and biotech whose employees still need workspace. There is growth in the tech industry, too, the development of artificial intelligence, which promises to transform the way that people live and work, is centered in San Francisco. Gary Tan, the president of Y Combinator, a prominent venture capital company, says he sees signs of renewal in San Francisco. It's the gold rush over and over and over again, he said. Mr. Tan is part of a generation of tech workers who are more assertive in their demands on city officials, unafraid to take sides in the city's internecine politics, and funding organizations that press for more emphasis on public safety. Now the narrative out there for some of the founders in our community is, I'm not sure if I feel safe here. I'm not sure if I want to stay here. The quality of life issues are the question. Can I raise a family here? In early April, some tech leaders seized upon the recent fatal stabbing downtown of Bob Lee, a prominent industry executive, as an alarming sign that the downtown was unsafe. But an acquaintance was later accused of murder, and San Francisco's murder rate is quite low compared with other major cities. Overall, police statistics show fewer property and violent crimes in 2022 than in 2018, before the pandemic began. Still, Bill Scott, the city's police chief, says many residents complain that they feel less safe, and the open-air drug use, much of it tied to fentanyl, is a major contributor. Matt Dorsey, a member of the Board of Supervisors, who lives steps away from the shuttered Whole Foods, said recent elections had signaled a shift in voter priorities. He pointed to last year's recall of the city's progressive district attorney, Chase Abudin, who was replaced by a prosecutor who vowed to be tougher on crime. San Francisco is in the midst of a voter revolt on public safety, Mr. Dorsey said. In a poll conducted by the San Francisco Chronicle in September, nearly two-thirds of respondents said life in the city was worse off than when they moved here. The new district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, has begun prosecuting more drug crimes than Mr. Budin, but the city experienced a 40% jump in fatal overdoses in the first quarter compared with the same period last year. Citing that statistic, Governor Gavin Newsom on Friday authorized an anti-drug task force in San Francisco that will include members of the California National Guard and California Highway Patrol. The mayor and the police chief have vowed to hire hundreds of additional officers, which would expand the force by more than one-fourth. A difficult proposition when law enforcement agencies nationwide are facing shortages. Not everyone is on board with that. Dean Preston, a member of the Board of Supervisors, who was re-elected in 2020 on a democratic socialist platform, is against increasing police staffing and believes the idea of a shift in the electorate's view about public safety is overstated. There's been a massive propaganda effort to change public opinion around policing and public safety, he said. 
Mr. Preston uses his district as an example of how uneven the pandemic recovery has been. Some areas like Japantown and Haight-Ashbury are thriving, he said. Others like the Tenderloin, which is adjacent to the shuttered Whole Foods, are beset by drug dealing and homelessness. One of the next big tests for downtown might be this summer's expected opening of an IKEA store not far from the Whole Foods site. Police described theft as rampant at Whole Foods, with thieves walking out with armfuls of alcohol, at least at the start. After 250 shopping hand baskets were stolen, the company restocked with 50 more. Those went missing, too. During the store's 13 months in operation, at least 14 people were arrested, including on charges of grand theft and battery, according to official reports. Chief Scott said that plainclothes officers were sent there and security improved over time, but seemingly not enough for the company. On a recent chilly night across from the shuttered store, Joseph Peterson, a former construction worker who lost both of his legs to diabetes and is homeless, rolled down the sidewalk in his wheelchair. Mr. Peterson could see the 2,000-unit Trinity Apartments, the high-end complex that Whole Foods had hoped would be its customer base. Across the intersection, security guards stood sentry in front of the Orpheum Theatre, where Pretty Woman, the musical, was playing. A few dozen steps away, dealers peddled fentanyl and crystal meth. Mr. Peterson said he understood why Whole Foods had closed the store. People kept stealing from it, he said. He, too, had taken macaroni and cheese and chicken from the hot food bar a number of times, he said. But he made a distinction. Other people stole from the store because they wanted to resell what they took. I just stole to eat, he said. Um, I mean, Clinton, I think by common consent, you know, they probably need at least one more defense. They need to upgrade their midfield because Vieira hasn't worked out at all for them, has it? But uh, talk about a striker and people are saying, well, oh, Arsenal, they just need to be in a, a 20 to 25 goal striker. 25 goals a season striker. What, where do you find one like that? They, I mean, they don't grow on trees, do they? You know, just go down to Stamford Bridge and ask Chelsea about finding a 20 to 25 goal season striker. No, yeah, it's going to cost big money. To be fair, Jesus can score goals. He's not an, the natural number nine because he can play on either wing and he just dropped deep. But I think he still scored his fair share of goals this season and he's been out. Um, he was out for a long bit of time as well, but I think he's a top top player. But yeah, they will want to strengthen him. Listen, Arsenal's business they did in the summer was fantastic. Credit to Edu Arteta. That they identified the places that they needed and they brought the players in and strengthened them. The likes of Zinchenko went there and obviously Jay-Z's who we're talking about. They've been um they've been outstanding signings. They brought in Jorginho in January, who he's made a big difference. He he makes a difference in there, but I think they do need a midfielder, and I think someone like, no West Ham fans might not like me saying that, but someone like a Declan Rice could be on his way to Arsenal in the summer. That would be a good signing for them in midfield, but they need to strengthen in midfield. All these teams need to strengthen um, in all areas, because come the end of the season, Man City will be strengthening, Chelsea will strengthen again, Arsenal want to be challenged again, Liverpool will strengthen, so they will need to strengthen, but I still think they've had a good season. And yeah, they've definitely made money for Arsenal. Yeah, Saliba's been injured, and you know, I mean, Rob Holden, He'll turn up for his what? You know what you're going to get, but he's not a Saliba. And that's where they've kind of struggled, because when you look at Arsenal going forward, they are as good as 
anything in the Premier League apart from Manchester City. Being you think Marinelli 15, Odegaard 12, Saka 13 goals. Jesus has missed a lot of the games, but he's got nine Premier League goals. Going forward is not the issue for Arsenal. Defensively, as I said, that's where the problem need a few reinforcements. Did he feel the need now? Now striker, you know, because Jesus is not. No, but I think those are unbelievable. I'll throw you a name, for example, and where fans won't. Well, wouldn't they benefit from Adam Tony being in that starting lineup? You, you could argue that, yeah, but as I said, the way that Arsenal play, you know, you can see them interchanging. Um, it wasn't so long ago we said that the, the two in the way they seem to be a lot better than Jesus is here when he's dropping down, allows Saka to come in and get the runs in behind. Um, you know, Martinelli the exact same. So, whilst I think the way that Arsenal play, this lineup suits some of this style of play, um, it suits some Ivan Tony's a different striker. Oh, would I, ha would I have them? Would I have them in a team? I think, I think, I think they're, I think they're very similar. I think they both want to come short. I think they both want to get involved. I think, you know, Ivan Tony obviously a better penalty taker, but I don't see too much between him and Jesus. I think they're exactly the same kind of player. They want to come short, shine out and out strike across the chip. It's not a lot out there, you know. You got to try and get the lad probably from Napoli. or so who's going to get him? I mean, yeah. but he's the one. I think if if Arsenal can get him, I think then you're talking a striker who can score goals, who wants to score goals. You know, Tony and Jesus, people like that. They're not yet. They're not your Harry Kane's in your Harlands. They get as much enjoyment out of setting someone up as what they would in scoring a goal. You know, so there's there's not a lot about you know Harry Kane for me is the one. He probably will go, but I, I don't think man he won't be going off. <laughs> no. Things I remember as well where Arsenal were 12 months ago. We have it. They pulled that behind. We've got a recency. That could happen again next season. Yeah, it could. Do you know what I mean? They're not chewing to get in the top four next season. You know, for how great they've done this season, Champions League next year. You know, when Arsenal, Chelsea finished 10th one year, they won the league the next year. They won the Premier League. They finished 10th. They had no Champions League, no Europe. It makes a difference. Arsenal never really had that this year. Now they're in the Champions League next year. You know, they're going to need more than one centre half. You know, because as soon as that centre half got injured, you know, a two, a three, a two, and a four. Yeah. You know, it's that's that tells you every. In industries where there aren't people that look like you, go where you don't belong because one day you will. When we started our business, we definitely were faced with extra challenges, some biases. We had a lot of pushback as to whether or not black women actually even drank wine or if black women could run a wine business. Of course, all of that sort of fueled our passion and our mission and really working to serve this, this consumer that we felt we know so well and deserve to be represented. Well, I think we have to start with our sister story. Yes. Both of us were born in Los Angeles to the same father. We grew up thinking that we were only children on completely different sides of the world and different hemispheres. I grew up in Central Coast of California in Monterey. She grew up in New Zealand. And even though we were a world apart, we both grew up in really beautiful agricultural areas. We both longed to be winemakers and we both actually longed to have a sibling. We reunited in 1999 when I got the letter and found out that I had a little sister. And I was like, this really sounds very scammy. <laughs> but I, of course, called the number that was on the letter and we actually made plans to meet the next day. It changed my life forever. I just can't imagine life without her now. So, <laughs> 17 years later, we have a multinational wine company and 
we have a non-for-profit limit brides as soon as she can fund. We have three brands, McBride Sisters Collection Wines, which are our wines from where I grew up in Central Coast of California and in New Zealand where Andrea grew up. We have Black Girl Magic Wines, which are premium wines from California. And we have She Can Wines, which of course is our wines in a can. She Can Wines, we launched in 2019. We wanted to take that opportunity to give back. We've seen a lot of the struggles that women were having in the industry. So we started our professional development fund, which would be scholarships, mentorships, grants for professional women in wine and spirits. 2020 was a little bit of a different year. The pandemic was starting to take a hold of the world. We started to see some really disturbing numbers around the federal funding, the PPP grants that were going to businesses. And we started to learn that Black-owned businesses, one, were shuttering at a much faster rate than any other, and that 96% of the businesses either didn't qualify or were rejected for the PPP funding. And we decided that year that we were going to award cash grants to Black women-owned businesses. And then we had some amazing support from corporate donors as well. They also were able to provide professional services to these businesses, assistance with financial planning, HR, and play management that some of these businesses might need in such a challenging time. This wine label is called Papa Tunuku, which in Māori translates to Mother Earth. Pinot Noir is a very fickle, <laughs> hard grape to grow. It has thinner skin and really expresses the dirt in which it's grown. The wine industry has had some version of wine education, but it's been pretty dull. This is my favorite one. We tried to create something that would engage folks in a new way and help them remember what they were learning. Super silky soft tannins. It just like coats your whole mouth. It has a really long finish and like there's really good integration of flavor. Traditionally, wine and food pairings have been, from this quite Eurocentric standpoint, that confit and chardonnay. We integrated pop culture, we integrated contemporary ways in which people like to eat and drink. We're talking about what goes with tacos. We're talking about wine and watch. And what are you watching on Netflix and what should you pair it with? Innovation really comes and growth really comes from diversity of thought. So if you have people from all different walks of life and backgrounds, it doesn't matter what the problem is, that everybody's going to approach it and try and solve it in a different way. And that's when the breakthroughs happen. And so I think because the wine industry hasn't been that diverse, there is so much opportunity. And so we're actually really optimistic and excited about the future. I think success for me will be when this industry fully represents the world around us, yes. That it's not dominated by one gender or one race of people, that it really is representing the consumer. More people love wine than ever before. So when I can visually see that when we go out in the world and that's who's at our industry conferences and who's at the winemakers conferences, I'll feel that that's, that's success, yeah.